Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. All right, Met fans, there's two ways we could look at this. We could be really, really positive and say, what a great road trip, 7-3. I was begging for 5-5. Five and five. They went out, they sweep the A's, they win two out of three against the Dodgers. They get a split against a Giants team that's better than what their record says. That's the positive. The negative is they just lost two baseball games that were really frustrating. They just lost two baseball games because they got very, very little from the big stars. Pete Alonso got very cold over the last two games outside of an RBI double by Francisco Lindor. He got very cold, and their starting pitching sucked, just, just to put it nicely. Tyler McGill was not his best. David Peterson was a disaster, and the Mets lose back-to-back games against the San Francisco Giants. We'll give you a little bit of both because the truth is it was a very successful road trip. They did go 7-3, and three, which I think going into this trip we would have been thrilled with. Um, the losses on Saturday and Sunday, they were kind of similar in that other than the starting pitching, they weren't terrible in any other aspect. They scored four runs in both games. You want to see more, but it's not like their offense was completely limp. Their bullpen for the most part was good outside of one bad pitch by Drew Smith. And it was just frustrating losses, which the Mets had against the San Francisco Giants. We'll talk about both games as well as a lot of other things around the Mets. What is David Peterson? Like, who the hell is he? The handling of the rotation coming up next week. And a part of the season right now where the Mets have to fatten up even more than they fattened up out West because they have a very, very soft schedule. So we'll get to all that, plus the latest on Justin Verlander. Let's start with the finale of this series at Oracle Park, Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, and we'll get ripping ESPN out of the way early. I think that for baseball more than any other sport, we want to hear our guys. We want to hear Gary Cohen. We want to hear Ronnie Darling. We want to hear Keith Hernandez. This crew on ESPN is not bad. Like, it's not a bad crew. I've never had an issue with Carl Ravitch. Never had an issue with David Cohen. I actually really like David Cohen. Eduardo Perez is irrelevant. He tries to be funny every once in a while, but who cares? So, What I'm about to say about this broadcast is nothing personal. They're not bad, but they don't know our baseball team. So there's like small things that bother me. First of all, the game was background noise to them. Their focus was Max Scherzer and sticky stuff for like three innings. Like we get it. It was four or five days ago. The Mets and the Giants are in the midst of what was over the first four innings, a really wacky back and forth game. And all they're talking about is sticky stuff as if the game is complete background information. The other thing that annoyed me, and this is such a minor, minor complaint, but it just shows you to me the difference between a national broadcast that helicopters in and our guys. When Jock Peterson comes to the plate in the first inning after McGill got that huge double play against J.D. Davis, all I could think about is the way Jock Peterson basically bent us over last year in San Francisco. Remember that series? Remember that game? hit like a million home runs, drove in 150 runs. That's all I could think about. These guys had no idea. Like there was no mention of, ah, here's Jock Peterson, fresh off the injured list. Remember what he did to the Mets last year? Every Met fan watching does. So it's a complaint, but it's more just an observation, something we all know. The national broadcasts just don't get it the way our local guys do. Not that I needed to have it rubbed in how much Jock Peterson kicks our asses it's just it shows you that they don't really know the team or feel the team the way we do and the way our broadcasters do so i agree with you on that uh, and to be honest oh. they really weren't that terrible i was agree it's i kind of like the david cones i know you said it was three innings too long on max scherzer but again there is like a point there where it was like wow David Cohen just called out the umpires and baseball and said, you guys are a bunch of morons for whatever you guys 
you made a big deal out of no reason with Max Scherzer. But anyway, that's besides the point. What I will say is this. They need to, national broadcasts need to make it more localized a little bit by bringing in something local about the team, whether it's another analyst, another reporter, play-by-play guy from both teams, just something to add to it, to make it seem that connection. I've always thought for playoff games, you take a broadcaster from each team and you mix them together. So I've always thought that would be good. The truth is, like you said, they weren't the worst in the world. It's only one game. We go back to our SNY guys Tuesday night. It's just an annoyance. My favorite part, though, about the Sunday night broadcast, I got to hand it to him, was Buck Showalter. You know, I've been criticized that I take too many shots at Buck. I love Buck. I just call him out. I thought his interview on the game Sunday night was brilliant. It was just everything about it was great. First of all, he's asked, hey, what are you going to do with Tyler McGill in the fifth inning? And he basically says, I'm not going to tell you. I, I, I'm, I know they may be listening. I don't want to tell Gabe Kapler exactly what I'm going to do. So I'm not going to broadcast it on TV. As soon as he said that, I knew he was taking Miguel out, by the way. Because otherwise, he'd be like, yo, Tyler's really battling along. I'm going to feel good about Tyler. So I thought Buck kind of gave it away. But I love how he gave it back to them. And then the line of the night. He mentions, well, it was a four o'clock start and we all know why. (laughs) Basically, you bastards, you guys, you ESPN guys were on the final game of a 10 game road trip. All of us just want to go home. None of us want to be here any longer than we have to. And we're starting the game three hours late. We know why we're starting three hours late. It's because of you guys. So that was the best part. Even the in-game interview with Brandon Nimmo. Like, it was all right. I mean, he told some cool stories about growing up in Wyoming, but it just, the whole guy on the field being interviewed, it feels weird. I I don't know if I could ever really wrap my head around it because I don't even know if they're naturally doing what they would normally do if there was no camera on them, if there was no microphone on them. So it's a nice try by ESPN and Major League Baseball. Doesn't really do it for me. Doesn't excite me that much. You don't think Nimmo is that talkative in between plays? Like, like he did some things where, it, listen, it wasn't like a profound, like, or not a profound, but like, oh my God, like he's such a great ball player. He's so locked in. It's just all basic stuff that they probably do routinely. But at least it was kind of cool to see him, like, you know, point out certain things and like, oh, I'm not getting that one or whatever. I feel like, I feel like that's him in a nutshell, Brandon Nimmo. It's different. It's, it's definitely different. It was all right. I don't think Brandon Nimmo did anything wrong necessarily. The game was just frustrating. It was just a very, very frustrating game because I never felt throughout the two and a half hours that they were going to win. You know, right off the top, Tyler McGill runs into trouble in the first inning, and that's kind of been his M.O. this season, even when he's pitched well. He runs into trouble early, and it was very frustrating because he gives up the leadoff hit to Lamont Wade. I thought it was gone, by the way. Like, I thought that Lamont Wade ball was going out. It actually bounced off the top of the fence, and Marte made a really good defensive play, fielding it off the wall, getting it into second base and holding him to a single. Conforto has a really good at-bat to draw a walk, and he gets this huge double play against J.D. Davis. But that always scares me because now you're one out away. There's a runner on third. Can you get that last out and somehow escape the jam? And Jock Peterson, who was such a pain in the ass against the Mets, had a tremendous at-bat. I think McGill was ahead either 0-2 or 1-2. Peterson worked at full 3-2, and two, hits that line drive that's a little bit over to Luis Guillorme, and the Giants are up 1-0. Then Tyro Estrada hits a bomb in the second inning. And then I thought McGill was going to settle down. Because, again, his struggles early have a lot of times turned into really good performances. That afternoon game against the Padres at City Field, that wrapped up the homestand, same thing. Got into trouble, settled down. So gives up the run in the first, gives up the run in the second. And all the signs were there that McGill was going to get into a groove. Pitches, gets the next three guys out in the second, pitches a relatively clean third inning. And at that point, the Mets are starting to fight back. They score a run. They make it two to one on that Lindor double. Like I mentioned earlier, it was the only thing the big bats, the big, big boys of Lindor and Alonzo did over the last two days. But then that fourth inning, was very, very shaky. Gives up a leadoff hit to Yastrzemski. Gives up a base hit to Brandon Crawford. Gives up a base hit to Blake Sable. Uh, And then I thought he had a shot to get the double play. 
I'm Brett Wisely, and Lindor kind of had issues with the transfer that allowed that run the score. But this is all happening right after the Mets give him the lead. So it was disappointing that it looked like McGill was settling in. It looked like he was going to be able to give him a good five, six innings, two-run baseball. And then he gives up those two runs in the fourth inning, giving the lead right back after the Mets gave it to him. So all in all, it was just a, a disappointing performance by Tyler McGill. And that's on the heels of David Peterson, basically. And we'll get to him in a second or in a few minutes. David Peterson really just sucking and making all Met fans think it's Jonathan Neese 2.0, essentially with Peterson. And if there's one critique of this baseball team right now, even on this West Coast trip, is outside of Hofsky, Joey Lucchese, they do not get innings from the starting pitching. And as good as this bullpen is, and it's been mostly good, it's tough to ask to get you know how many outs out of your bullpen on a nightly basis. So he kept them in the game. I guess that's your positive, but it was a little disappointing for McGill to get knocked around in the fourth inning. And I agree with Buck. I thought it was the right time to take him out because if you're trying to win the baseball game and you do have a well-rested bullpen, which they had, thanks to Yuseta being the only guy they used on Saturday and the off day on Monday. So Buck's got all the arms to use. He can unleash everybody. If you're trying to win that baseball game, there's no way Tyler McGill's going third time around the order in the fifth inning. And Buck made the right call taking him out. But overall, very disappointing performance by Tyler McGill. We want more from him. We expect more from him, especially with all the guys out in the rotation. You start to say, who's your number one? Who's your number two? Who's your number three? McGill's kind of moved up that list. Offensively, it was frustrating because you get the RBI double by Francisco Lindor. You get lucky when Michael Conforto essentially drops a fly ball in right field. But the Mets have good at-bats to score runs. A couple of sacrifice flies in that fourth inning. They get the home run from Alvarez, which was great to see, only because he has struggled so much that for him to hit a guy who is so difficult to hit, especially right-handers. I mean, Tyler Rogers is murder on right-handed hitters. And the Mets couldn't touch him as he's kind of breezing through these two innings. So forgetting just this game, I thought it was awesome to see Francisco Alvarez have that kind of success. And finally give the Mets something from the catching position. I give ESPN this. They brought up those numbers on the broadcast on Sunday night. I almost didn't realize how pathetic it was that this has been a continuation from last year that the Met catchers had zero extra base hits. When you think about it, it makes sense. Narvaez barely played. Nito, I mean, Nito gets a single. It feels like a home run. Alvarez has been really quiet. So when you think about it, it's not stunning but they have gotten less production from catcher than they even got last year, which is tough to imagine. But that was it for the offense. Alvarez hits that home run. They get the little infield hit from Mark Hanna. And from that moment on, the Met offense got mowed down completely by this giant bullpen. Brebbia, Alexander, Duvall in the ninth inning. So when you point towards why did they lose this game, number one, Tyler McGill was mediocre. Number two, the offense, even though they scored four runs, which is a little bit less than your average, basically, they didn't do much. I mean, outside of the Lindor RBI double, it was a lot of, I'm glad they scored the runs on sacrifice flies, but they weren't exactly murdering the baseball. And they didn't score runs. They didn't score enough runs. The one thing I, the one thing I want to say about Francisco Alvarez is that, first of all, everyone just chill with him. Get off his back. All I keep on seeing is he's overmatched. And listen, is he struggling a little bit? Sure, but he struggled at every level. I will say this, though. You go back to the at-bat before where I think it was bases loaded again. He struck out. Um, the first pitch, the umpire's not helping him. Uh, Curveball outside, doesn't hit the corner, yet he calls him the yeah. strike one. Then he, then he watches the ball bounce in the, pl- bounce in the plate. Like, so he's not, like, ineffective. He's not getting any luck right now. It's still early. You play him every day. Those numbers will change. Yeah, he had – it was very frustrating. I mean, I will admit that. You know, he comes up with the bases loaded after the error by Ross Stripling. Bases loaded, one out. You're basically given a gift. And the 3-1 pitch, or was it uh, – I'm sorry. I think it was the 2-2 pitch. Looked like it could have been strike three. And Roberto Ortiz, who's the unplayed umpire, called ball three. And it's funny because as that happened, I said out loud, 
God, I hope he doesn't ground into a double play. We're going to wish that was strike three. <laughs> and he bounces into the double play. And then you mentioned in the following, and he comes up with bases loaded, nobody out and strikes out. But I thought Ortiz overall, I'd say he had a tough night, but I'm partial towards umpires having bigger strike zones. I don't mind when you're just a little bit bigger. And I thought he was, I don't know if consistent's the right word. I don't know if he was consistent. But I didn't think he was awful. I just had, thought he had a really big strike zone. And when you've got that ESPN strike strike box, that's going to play with our minds even more. If anything's called a strike that ESPN is telling us is not a strike, we're going to think, oh, my God, Ortiz is a schmuck. Truthfully, he was calling a bigger strike zone, which in general I like. Obviously, there are moments in a game in which it feels like a big swing. And I think that's a good point, Pete, with Alvarez that – that first pitch was out of the K zone. It's called a strike, and it changes the whole complexion of the at-bat. I'm just saying, in general, I like the bigger strike zone, and I thought Ortiz all single night, all, all night long was calling just a bigger strike zone. Well, speaking of calling strikes and balls and whatnot, Alvarez, first of all, looked at him and was like, dude, that first pitch was a little outside. But besides it that, was. it was. We, we talk about Alvarez. One thing we haven't really talked about, he's been good behind the plate. He's been fine. Yeah. He's been I fine. Know. And that was always their biggest issue with him, right? Yeah. hundred percent. That's so, so are we at this point now? I understand it's just one home run. So we're not going to sit here and, and go into like, okay, he's got to play every single game the rest of the season, but is it time to now shift to put Alvarez behind the plate more than 50% of the time? Well, they just had a 10 game road trip. Off the top of your head, do you know how many games he started on this 10-game road trip? I'm going to say four, five. He started five. It was 50-50. And I know you just said, hey, isn't it time to see more than 50-50? I would counter and say this is the beginning of 50-50 because when he was first called up, he wasn't playing 50-50. It was two out of three every single time for Tomas Nito. And I remember before the West Coast trip started, we were predicting, hey, how many of these 10 games would he play? And I think my prediction was three, and I'm glad I'm wrong because he's playing more. He just is. Is it enough for you and I and a lot of Met fans? I don't think it's ever going to be enough until he's literally playing every single day. But I think we are starting to see that shift. We are. From Buck just playing him more, just throwing him out there, and we've seen him catch almost everybody. You know, we are starting to say we saw him catch Max Scherzer during that game in Los Angeles. And I think that's also really important that he's comfortable catching everybody. So it does feel like the Mets are starting to play Alvarez a little bit more. He does have that home run, which shows you, all right, he's got a little bit of pop. Other than that, it was not a great offensive day. He struck out against Doval on three or four pitches in the ninth. And we mentioned the two bases loaded spots he was up in. And that's not me saying you shouldn't play. Of course you should play. Guys are going to struggle. I said this about Anthony Volpe on the fan. Every day till June 1st. On June 1st, we reevaluate and we say, hey, can he play in the major leagues? Is he struggling too much? Should he be sent back down? And Volpe's had his moments. He's played better recently. On Sunday, he made a huge error and went 0 for 4. What does that mean? Does that mean he shouldn't play shortstop anymore? No. He's got to go out there and play every day. And I think Alvarez is the same way. And I bring them up because Volpe and Alvarez are two of the biggest prospects in baseball. They're not just prospects. They're elite-level prospects. So I'm not saying because he left a country on base in his first two at-bats, he shouldn't play again. No, he should be out there every day. And what makes it easier for us is we're comparing it to Tomas Nito, who is hitting – I know he had that bunt base hit, so that raised his average. He fell under 100. I think he, at some point on Saturday, he was sitting like 097 and he gets that bunt hit. So it brings the average up like 30 points or whatever it was. One other interesting thing Buck did in the Sunday night game was he pinch hit as early as we've ever seen him pinch hit. We take you back to that fourth inning where the Mets scored the two runs helped out by the Michael Conforto drop pop up. So Alvarez strikes out with the bases loaded. And Gabe Kapler very quickly pulls Ross Stripling. I mean, I wouldn't even call him a starting pitcher. 67 pitches, Boomy's out. He brings in the lefty Taylor Rogers, lefty Taylor Rogers. And Luis Guillorme is scheduled to come up with the bases loaded and one out. And I was very mixed about this as they went to commercial because I thought 
you could pinch hit here. It's easy. It's not that complicated if you want to do it. Or do you give Luis, who's good with the bat, not great against lefties, but is good at making contact, do you give them this opportunity early? I didn't mind going to Marcana. You're not going to Eduardo Escobar, though I guess it's an option, but I don't think you trust him enough. And clearly Buck has shown he does not trust Escobar enough to the point where Guillaume is the guy getting more starts. We floated out the idea with Beatty here. Escobar could play some second McNeil in the outfield. Yeah, we've seen that, except with Guillaume at second base and McNeil in the outfield. So he goes to Mark Canna, and Canna does what Canna does. He puts the bat on the ball in a productive way. Even if Conforto catches that, it's a sacrifice fly. By the way, technically, it's a sacrifice fly either way. It's a sack fly RBI, and he reaches on the E9 if you want to get if you want to get technical. But bottom line is, he did what you want him to do. So I like Buck doing that. Were you Did you like that pinch hitting in the fourth inning? I, I do. I've said this before. You know, I've seen spots where Vogelbach can get in the game early too. And you're, and it, even if it's – you never know when you're going to get an actual spot for these, yeah. these bench players to get in. So it, it, this may be the biggest part of the game is the fourth inning. Bring him in. And Buck even said in that in-game interview that the reason he did it was because of the shadows, that you don't know how many other opportunities you're going to get. And he was prophetic because they didn't have any other opportunities. Think about this. After the fourth inning, the New York Mets had one base runner. Now, they hit the home run, which sort of counts as a base runner. But in terms of getting a guy on base – the infield single by Mark Canna right after the home run was the only other time they put a guy on first base. So he was right. He was dead on about that. They did not have other scoring opportunities. Was it simply the shadows? It's a part of it. Was it the giant bullpen pitching really well? Sure, it's a part of it. Was it the Met offense doing nothing? That's a part of it too. I mean, you, you mix it all together and you have the Met offense doing very little over the final five innings of this game. The bullpen, a couple of things about this bullpen. Jeff Brigham has been very impressive, very. And I think Jeff has at least assured himself, though he does have options, that he should stick around. He really should. The Mets have a couple of guys, Yuseta, who pitched the other day and is still here, Jimmy Yacobonis, who has pitched well, Tommy Hunter, I kind of put him in this special category because Buck loves him. You know, he's got the history with Tommy Hunter. But Yuseta and Yacobonis, to me, would be the guys going down before Jeff Brigham. Jeff Brigham has major league experience with the Marlins last year. He's got plenty of major league experience, and he's just looked dominant. When he pitched, and he came in in the fifth inning against the heart of the order, he struck out two guys, got a second inning of work in the sixth inning, strikes out two more guys. His slider sweeper, whatever the hell you want to call it, has been, looks unhittable. So he's been very, very impressive in the time he's been up here. Brooks rally was pretty impressive outside of that double by Lamont Wade gets the big out against Conforto. He's been good against everybody. And as far as Drew Smith's concerned, Drew had been pitching really well. He hadn't allowed a run since the first weekend at home at city field. And, and truthfully, look, he walks Jock Peterson, which I did not hate for this reason. Jock Peterson is a home run threat. And once you fall behind them, the last thing you want to do is throw this monster a cookie. So he walks him with one out. Yeah, puts the lead run on base, and we saw what happened. But in the moment, I'm thinking to myself, hey, look, as long as you're not throwing a fastball right down the middle of this guy, you want to walk him? You want to go after Mike Yastrzemski, who to me does not scare me nearly as much? Fine, go ahead. The problem is he fell behind Yastrzemski, and he had stopped ball up the alley, and I was hoping that Nimmo was going to be able to run it down. Either, with, either they would hold him at third, or they'd get the opportunity to throw him out at the plate. Yastrzemski just meet, beat the throw. And to Drew Smith's credit, after giving that up, he was able to fight through it and kept it a one-run game. Problem was the Met offense wasn't doing anything against Camilo DeBall. And they lose the finale of the series to the San Francisco Giants by a final score of 5-4. to four. The game before, The game before to me was about David Peterson. David Peterson right now is not pitching well enough to remain in a rotation. It's a sample size now of five starts. He's had a couple of decent ones, don't get me wrong. But his last two starts, the one in L.A., the only reason he pitched six innings is because Buck was desperate. Buck was desperate to not have to use his bullpen. And then this game on Saturday, 
He gives up a three-run home run of Brandon Crawford. He's been giving up way too many home runs against lefties. In fact, lefties have beaten the crap out of him. He's given up four home runs to left-handed hitters in 29 at-bats. Four. A year ago in 2022, when overall I thought he did a really good job as a spot starter, he gave up five home runs to lefties in 85 at-bats. And lefties did not hit him very well. Held him to a 177 average and a 640 OPS. So what the hell's going on this year? I can't tell you. But Peterson's got to watch out. Because despite McGill's mediocrity on Sunday, he's been a lot better. Joey Lucchese's one start was obviously a lot better. And with Justin Verlander on the way back and Max Scherzer coming back from his suspension, assuming no one else gets hurt, that means Kodai Senga stays healthy and Tyler McGill and Joey Lucchese stay healthy at this moment, because this is all about results to me. David Peterson's out of the rotation. That's where he's at. I defended Peterson as the first guy in the rotation, but that was based on the way he pitched. He pitched well last year. I stand by that. This is a performance business, and his performance has not been good enough. It just hasn't. And you start to think to yourself, guy's been around for a few years now. Now, guy has made 47, 48 major league starts. That's, you know, a year and a half full-time starting. I'm not saying get rid of him. I'm just saying maybe he's not that good. <laughs> we, we may have to draw that conclusion. Yeah, but uh, and here's the thing is, uh, when we look at these the pitching rotation, we say five, six-man rotation, depending on, on the week. I mean, if you're talking about him being the fifth or sixth starter, I'm not saying it's great that he's giving up four or five runs a game, but you could live with it. He's your fifth, sixth starter. No, you can't live with a 70 RA. Like, I, I agree with you. I don't need that much out of my fifth starter. That's why Tyler McGill, I think, would fit that bill. You know, if his worst outing is going to be what he did Sunday night, four innings, gives up four runs, a little shaky, fine. But David Peterson's got a seven and a half ERA. Like, that. that's not good enough to be a fifth starter. And I got a text in the Mets text chat that I'm in. Plus, I saw a few people tweet this out, that David Peterson is Jonathan Neese. David Peterson is Steven Matz. And I totally get it. You know, that left-hander, that young left-hander, who's homegrown, who you're waiting to develop into something really good. And the question is, will that something really good ever happen? Or will it turn into Pete Shurik, where he develops just with another team? And I apologize for that 30-plus-year reference, because John Neese and Steven Matz really didn't develop somewhere else. Now, I don't think what Matz has done elsewhere kind of fits as developing. But I ran some numbers. For anyone who wants to bring up the Peterson-Nice-Mats comparison, David Peterson has made 48 starts in his major league career, as I just mentioned. Right now, in those 48 starts, he has a 4.58 ERA, and he's thrown 247 innings. By the way, a 4.5 ERA, maybe that could be good enough to be a fifth starter. That's not what he's done this year, though. So I looked at John Nice's first 48 starts and Steven Matz's first 48 starts to see like, is he basically those guys? Is he better? Is he worse? The answer, before I give you the numbers, is that he's worse. He's close to John Neese. It's relatively close. He's not that close to Steven Matz. Through 48 starts, Jonathan Neese had a 4.39 ERA, and he threw about 30 more innings. So ERA a little bit lower. He threw more innings. He was also younger. Through 48 starts, John Neese was only 25 years old. David Peterson is 27 years old. Steven Matz, on the other hand, the best of the three. Through 48 starts, he had a 3.97 ERA, and he threw 267 and a third innings. So if you want to compare the three, it's not the worst comparison because it ain't that far off. Like, Neese and Peterson are only separated by two-tenths of a run. It's a little bit more significant for Matz. And what's weird about Steven Matz, I always thought we saw the best of Steven Matz too early. I thought he was at his best when he first came up. And then he just had a really, really tough time staying healthy and was never able to put it all together. It never really worked out for Steven Matz. I totally get that. But yeah, David Peterson so far, if you look at those numbers, is the worst of the three. And right now he's not showing the signs 
that he's ever going to blossom into a solid, reliable back of the rotation starting pitch. Well, I, I hate to say this because I'm a Joey Lucchese, you know, stand right now. Um, Joey Lucchese is going to turn into Ali Perez. He's going to give you an amazing year. This year is going to be phenomenal. I think he's going to, I told you, I said it for a long time. He's going to be the surprise starter for this rotation. But after that, I, I, I going to push everything aside. I, it, it might be a one hit wonder, but that's all we need right now. Well, yeah, because you know, you're just looking at this season. I'm not thinking about Joey Lucchese two years from now, but the Mets are going to need to develop some young pitching. <laughs> they, 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 they but they had able to do that. Isn't there somebody I keep on saying DeMeo, and I, I don't remember who the guy is, but he keeps on pointing out some younger kid who I think is double A who's been killing it. Now I think he's a righty, but he's killing it in double A. I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. I don't have my phone in front of me. Hamill, Dominic Hamill, I think is his name. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, but right now nobody's that close. Is part of the problem. And McGill, Peterson, Lucchese. Obviously, Lucchese is not homegrown, but they're three relatively young starters, and they need someone to step up because Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander haven't exactly been reliable. Verlander can't stay healthy so far, and Scherzer, well, it's been up and down. Which I don't want to get into the whole Max Scherzer thing, but they're not getting a lot out of David Peterson so far. And if this rotation can be healthy in a week and a half, he could end up back in AAA. That's just the reality. Now, Lucas is going to get another start, so we'll see how he does when he takes on the Washington Nationals and see if he can back that up. But if he backs it up, he stays in the rotation. I don't think there's any doubt about it. It's going to be interesting to see what the Mets do here because they have continued to really put an emphasis on giving Kodai Senga an extra day. Every start Senga has made, he's made four starts so far in his major league career. He's had an extra day of rest, and they're going to continue that coming up against the Nationals, and that creates the Tuesday game being the starting pitching opening game because they don't have anybody. But more on that in a few minutes. A couple of things on that Saturday game. Number one, for all you that hate the pitch clock, and I don't know, have you come around on the pitch clock or are you still kind of lukewarm to it, Pete? Uh, there's some really good things that have come out, come out of it, I won't lie, but there's still some things that I'm – well, let's get to the ugh, because you're actually going to hear me rip it for a second. On Saturday late afternoon, the New York Mets obviously was not a good game. They're playing from behind from the beginning, gave up the four runs early. They were down six to one. They got it to six to two. Then it's seven to two. Then it's seven to three. And they're showing a little bit of life in the ninth inning. Mark Canna singles and Daniel Vogelback is at the plate. And the Mets need a couple more base runners and potentially they could get the tying run to the plate against Duvall. And Vogelback's having this great at-bat, really good at-bat. It's a 3-2 count eventually with Camilo Duvall. And then finally, they call a pitch clock violation. If you recall, Duvall was called for two of them against the Yankees the first weekend of the year. So this is a guy who's having a tough time adapting to the pitch clock. So they call a pitch clock violation. Great. First and second. One out. Beatty's coming up. The Mets are now one base runner away from bringing the tying run to the plate. And here comes Gabe Kapler to say, whoa, 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 stop the clock. <laughs> Stern fans may get that. And all of a sudden, the umpires meet up. And so the pitch clock, which is there to speed up the game, has now caused the game to stop in the ninth inning because a pitch clock violation is called. Then the umpires are meeting about the pitch clock, and they say, you know what? We effed up. We were supposed to stop the clock. We didn't. Buck then comes out to get his explanation. Meanwhile, Camilla Duvall's now throwing warm-up pitches. We have the pitch clock to speed up the game. And in this sequence, the ninth inning, with the game on the line, Vogelback thinks he's going to first base. Now he comes back, and we got to wait around for five minutes for these schmucks to figure out, is it a pitch clock violation, or should we start over? So eventually they decide, no pitch clock violation. Okay, three and two, throw a pitch. And what happens? Daniel Vogelback can't get his damn bat off the shoulder. Strike three right down the middle, two men down. That was very, very frustrating. If you're the umpires, can you figure this crap out? Because it, it, it's, it's ironic. Like the whole point of the pitch clock is we're not stepping off, scratching balls, taking five minutes between pitches. Time how much time it took 
between the three, two pitch non pitch clock violation to the actual three, two pitch. That was strike three to Vogelbach felt like it took five minutes. So I thought that was a very bad and embarrassing moment, not only for the umpiring crew, but for the pitch clock. That's my first criticism of the pitch clock and the way it was handled by the umpires on Saturday afternoon. And that's why there should be a rule that um, uh, that managers cannot, quote-unquote, challenge or interfere with a pitch clock violation. That's got to be something from above, from New but, York. But it worked. But it worked. Yeah, but it's but you know what though? But but again, like the umpires should just have to move go go forward with the game. And if someone from New York is or is checking in on that, they need to have a higher position for this spot. Because again, like you said, it worked. You could you could change it. It was wrong, but somebody else should be seeing it. And it shouldn't come from the, the managers. I think what bothered me was the moment it happened in the game because it went from ball four, first and second one out to three, two pitch fastball right down the middle, strike three call. So it went from a big spot where the Mets could rally to, okay, this game is essentially over. The other thing that happened in that ninth inning unrelated to the pitch clock that I thought was fascinating. And it it goes back to something I said earlier about Buck and how he has no confidence in Eduardo Escobar is after Vogelback strikes out, Brett Beatty singles. So the Mets now have, uh, and that drove a run in. So it's now 7-4. Beatty's on first two outs. One more base runner. Tying runs at the plate. The batter due up is Tomas Nito. Okay, easy. We're going to pinch hit for him. You've got four options on your bench. You've got Francisco Alvarez. You've got Tommy Pham. You've got Eduardo Escobar. And you have Luis Guillorme. Buck Showalter went with Luis Guillorme. I'm not saying that's the wrong answer, but it shows you how far Escobar has fallen. That, yes, it's a righty on the mound, so it's Escobar's weaker side these days, though then again, everything's his weaker side. But he chose to go with Guillorme over Escobar when all they needed was a base runner. If they were tying run at the plate, I think he manages it differently. Then he goes for pop, may go to Alvarez, but probably goes to Escobar. But still, it, it shows you that while he may love Eduardo as a veteran leader, boy, the confidence in him is rock bottom. It is, and it also shows that this this bench is still very weak. In big spots, you listen, Guillermo's a contact hitter. We know that. And he's been okay, puts bat on bull but you still need a bigger bat to come in into to those spots. You just don't have them. You don't have enough of a bench. I, I really like Luis Guillorme. I think he's the kind of guy you want on your team. I'm telling you, man, it's being set up where he's the odd man out because Ronnie Mauricio is learning other positions. If he learns other positions, then he plays the same positions as Luis Guillorme, except he gives you that potent bat. So while you lose something defensively, then again, I haven't seen Mauricio at shortstop, second base. Uh, he played one game at third base. I think it was in the uh, Winter League. So I can't tell you he's bad at those positions. I just know Luis Guillorme is brilliant at those positions, so I have a tough time imagining Mauricio's quite as good. But once there's confidence in Mauricio playing those positions, you bring him up, the odd guy outs Luis because it's redundant position-wise. But the only thing I'll say about that, and, and this is a bigger situation because, yeah, right, like Guillermo, it's all about options. We talked about John Curtis going down because he's got options. And right. bring, doesn't Brigham have options too? Maybe they send him yes. down because he's got options. It's all yeah. about options. Yeah. Well, Escobar doesn't have options, but also if he's not getting playing time, then what the hell is he doing on this team? I understand he's a great, yeah. he's a great leader on this team, but at some point it's like if you're not going to play him, he's just taking up space. Yeah, no, no, you will get to that point. If the manager isn't going to use him (laughs) off the bench as a threat, then what's he doing here? I agree with you. He could be the other guy, but I think sometimes, like you mentioned, when you have options, it just becomes a little bit easier. By the way, Mauricio has been playing second base every day. Like every time I check the minor league uh, ballpark app, whatever the hell it's called, the minor league baseball app, and I check the box score at AAA, He's been at second base three, four games in a row. So clearly they're going to try to get him comfortable over at that position. But the game on Saturday sucked. Peterson wasn't good. They couldn't hit Logan Webb. 
And like I mentioned, and this was something from last year too, when Alonzo doesn't hit and Lindor doesn't hit, for the most part, team doesn't hit. So you go back to Saturday, Francisco Lindor, 0 for 4. Pete Alonzo, 0 for 4. You go to Sunday, Lindor, 1 for 4, did have the RBI double. Pete Alonzo, 0 for 4. So I wouldn't say it's a slump necessary because Alonzo had a big Friday night, drove in four runs. But since the four RBI outburst on Friday, Pete's backed it up with an 0 for 8. I think it's great for this team to get an off day. They've played a lot of baseball over the last couple of weeks. Get that off day, come back to New York, and hopefully get hot again and snap this two-game losing streak. They are playing a bad baseball team. And while there is that big four-game series against the Braves mixed in, listen to these opponents the Mets have coming up. This is an incredible stretch of games. They are about to play 23 games. Four of them are against Atlanta. Here are the other 19 games they play. You ready? 16 games they play, I should say. Seven against the Washington Nationals. Three of them coming up next week at City Field. They'll play four in D.C. in a couple of weeks. Three games in Detroit against the Tigers. Three games at City Field against the Colorado Rockies. Three games in Cincinnati against the Reds. These are bad baseball teams. You got to go beat them. It's right in front of you. See, even with the starting pitching issues that they're going to have for another week until they can get Scherzer back and Verlander back, which is all scheduled to happen in a little over a week. Uh, Scherzer should pitch that Monday afternoon against the Braves a week from Monday. And then Verlander, assuming they keep up with this, he's going to make a rehab start. And I'm against him making a rehab start. Call him up. Like, I'm serious. What? If you're only going to have them throw 70 pitches, okay, I'll take those 70 pitches against the Braves. I don't think he's trying any differently in a rehab game. He's going to try to throw hard. He's going to try to throw all his pitches. He's not effing around necessarily. I think in this day and age in baseball where getting innings out of your starters is such a rarity, plus you have the DH in the National League, F the rehab start. Bring them up. Four innings against the Braves. Let's go. I mean, let's be serious. Is it going to be who? Who are they going to bring in if it's not Verlander? Is it, Peterson's going to get the start? Brito, whoever it's going to be. I mean, they're more likely to get blown up too. So give get four good, three, four good outings out of Verlander. Here's the way things are scheduled to go as of right now. Uh, they will announce somebody to pitch Tuesday because they want to give Senga the extra day. If they let Senga pitch on his fifth day, he would pitch Tuesday and Sunday with the Sunday game being against Atlanta. But because they want to give Senga an extra day, he won't face the Braves unless he pitches Monday. But the plan for Monday is Max Scherzer. So the plan to give Senga an extra day is fascinating in sort of this weird negative way, as if they're hiding him against Atlanta or afraid of him pitching on regular rest. So here's what this homestand looks like on paper, at least. TBD for Tuesday. I'm not sure if Budo's been down long enough for him to get the call. It may be a day off. I'm not sure. Tuesday, I'm sorry, Wednesday will be Kodai Senga against the Nationals with an extra day. Every start he's made has been with an extra day. Thursday against the Nationals, Joey Lucchese. Friday against the Braves, you want to set the tone? David Peterson. <laughs> and by the way, against Max Freed. That's where it's lining up. David Peterson against Max Freed. Friday night, City Field, Mets Braves. Saturday afternoon, Tyler McGill against Spencer Strider. Sunday, TBD. I, who knows? I don't know who the hell it would be. And then Monday would be Max Scherzer. If you don't want Max Scherzer to go Monday, like he needs an extra day, then it could be Kodai Senga. But it, it can't actually, yeah, I guess it could be Kodai Senga. But this is all a part of their plan to give him an extra day. Because if he pitches Wednesday, his extra day would be Tuesday, which is when he's going to pitch. I, it scares me that the Mets are scared of pitching Kodai Sang on regular rest because the way it's going to line up is that he's never pitching on regular rest. It's almost like they've manipulated this, and it's going to get challenging, obviously, as the season rolls on, but they are really trying to avoid having pitch on four days rest. I'm not trying to be a jerk about this, but – What's the big deal giving a shot once? Like, see how bad he gets. Because so far, he hasn't been, like, lights out where it's like, ooh, that extra day really is uh, helping here. 
Give them that. Screw it. Make it normal rest. See how it goes. I, I think they are delaying the inevitable because they were able to avoid it even on this stretch of games where they didn't have an off day. They're going to be able to manipulate things right now because they pushed him back. But eventually, he's going to have to pitch on his regular day. It's just going to happen. Right now, assuming Verlander makes that rehab start, which they basically said he's going to, his debut is looking like it's going to be May 3rd in Detroit against the Tigers, which is kind of cool, going back to the old stomping grounds, or on Thursday, May 4th. So at, at the end of the day, Verlander will have missed more than a month. That's that's what we're looking at in terms of the Verlander injury. The other thing that was sort of strange is that I had read earlier today, I think Michael Meyer was the one who tweeted it, that Mark Vientos had been scratched. So it led to this speculation of, is he getting the call? Is Starling Marte hurt? Obviously, Marte was in the lineup, went one for four. So he's still playing. Why was Vientos scratched? Apparently, he wasn't scratched. He was just getting an off day. One quick thing about Vientos He's been tearing it up at AAA. He's at six home runs. All six home runs against right-handed pitching. All of them. So he's hit righties better than he's even hit lefties. So good for him. I mean, he's certainly earned his way up here. The question is, when is it going to happen? Got an email that I think we should read. It came from an eight-year-old. Lieb Schachter writes, Hi, Evan. We love your show. I'm eight years old, and I have an idea for a topic. Can you say the top 10 pitchers in Met history, and if Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander are in it? Thank you. Well, first of all, Lieb, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Knowing that an eight-year-old is downloading this podcast is a reminder that I should never curse. So I apologize if I have cursed. Sometimes I get emotional. So there are two ways to answer that question. There's who are the greatest pitchers to ever pitch for the Mets? And it's who are the greatest pitchers who did it for the Mets? So what I mean by that is the Mets have had some incredible players come through this franchise over the course of their history. Pedro Martinez, for my money, may be the greatest pitcher I've ever seen. He pitched on the New York Mets. Would I count him? Warren Spahn, well before my time, well before your time, is one of the greatest left-handers in the history of baseball. At age 45, he pitched for the New York Mets. Do we count a guy like him? Nolan Ryan came up with the New York Mets. Had some success, certainly. Helped the Mets win the World Series in 1969. But he is most known for his dominance elsewhere with the Angels, with the Astros, with the Rangers. Would we include Nolan Ryan? And the reason I bring this up is if we were doing it that way, if we were saying, doesn't matter what they did for the Mets, who are the greatest pitchers to ever pitch for the New York Mets, then yeah, Scherzer and Verlander are up there, as is Tommy Glavin, (laughs) as is Pedro Martinez, Johan Santana, of course, Tom Seaver, Nolan Ryan, Warren Spahn. It's an incredible list, but I would take it as who are the greatest pitchers that did it for the New York Mets. So off the top of my head, without breaking down stats, without really super analyzing it, though we could do a podcast on it. I would say that George Thomas Seaver is the greatest pitcher to ever pitch for the New York Mets. I would say that Jacob DeGrom was an incredibly great New York Met. I would say that Dwight Gooden was a great New York Met. We're at three. Jerry Kuzman would be on that list. John Matlack would be on that list. Al Leiter would be on that list. Ronnie Darling would be on that list. David Cohn would be on that list. How many have I got to, by the way? Three, six, eight. I think that's eight. Yeah, you need two more. Hmm. Who else would I put on that list? Does it make a difference how long they were here for? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's a great question. Like, if you're great for a good, if you're great for a couple of years, is that enough? I don't know. I mean, it's it's really our own list. It's it's how we view it. It's how we want to put guys up there. Um, El Sid Fernandez has to be on that list. I apologize for not mentioning him earlier. Sid, if you end up looking at his numbers, he's he's up there in a lot of categories. So he would be up there too. Would I don't think Johan was dominant enough for a long enough time. I don't. Uh, Rick Reed, I thought was really, really good. That would be more of a sentimental thing. I'm not sure if he put the pelts on the wall. 
Um, yeah, I would leave it at nine. I would just keep those guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. But by the way, for Scherzer or Verlander to get on that list, they'd have to win the World Series and they'd have to do something incredible in the postseason. I don't think there's enough time on their career arc left for Verlander to have like what five dominant seasons. I, I just I can't see it happening. But in terms of great players that pitched for the New York Mets, absolutely. And that's it. In a lot of ways, that's a more fascinating list because there's so many great pitchers that just came through that door, that, that walked through that door. Obviously, some of them we don't think of as fondly about. None, none of us are going to think that fondly of Tom Glavin. That's for freaking sure. But in terms of Hall of Fame pitchers, I mean, Glavin's a Hall of Famer. Pedro's a Hall of Famer. Spawn's a Hall of Famer. Scherzer and Verlander would all be Hall of Famers. That'd be some list. We've had a lot of great players walk through that door. But a great question, Lee, and we definitely appreciate you listening. You can email the podcast, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com. One thing we are going to do soon. I mentioned the pitch clock earlier to Pete because there was that incident in the midst of the Met game. There was a lot of debate. We had it on this pod. We had it on the fan talking about the pitch clock. It's the greatest. It's the worst. It's the greatest. It's the worst. There was one caller to WFAN who was very passionate against the pitch clock. And I said to Pete, get that guy's number. We should have like a, a formal debate about it instead of, you know, 45 seconds when you call the radio station. But I didn't want to do that right away. I wanted to give it time. We need to watch baseball, watch the pitch clock, and then have a debate. As we approach one month into the season, which we're almost at, I think the time to have that debate is almost upon us. So we will have a more long-form debate around the pitch clock because we've seen it. Sometimes it's tough to, to, to just argue about something that's so hypothetical. We've had almost a month of baseball. We're about a week away from saying it's been a full month of Major League Baseball, and I think there's more of a sample size to talk about the good, the bad. Maybe your opinion's changed. Maybe you've come around or maybe you've gotten more negative to it. So we'll have a further discussion on the pitch clock. But big week coming up, three games against the Nationals and then four games against the Atlanta Braves in which the Braves will have the starting pitching edge in a lot of those games as we laid out. But enjoy the fact that the New York Mets are only a half game out of first place and had a very successful 7-3 and West Coast trip. We appreciate you listening and downloading. I'll be on with Craig throughout the week at 2 o'clock. Pete with Tiki and Tierney. Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 